Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Who are they making them now? Many, many millions we could be making right now. I mean, we first contacted them a year ago, March, and got no response. Finally, they came back to us and... June and said no to us in October. But on the other hand, you know, we've been approached by other countries and other international organizations to produce vaccine for them, and we're in the middle of those discussions. The owner of NuVax in Montreal saying that even though his company, his NuVax, had approached the federal government in last March with an offer to produce vaccines, they never heard back from them. From NuVax, and now international governments, foreign governments, are approaching NuVax and asking Donald Gerson, Dr. Gerson, to consider producing vaccines for their people. But uh, our federal government decided not to pursue the NuVax initiative. Aaron O'Toole is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. O'Toole, thank you for the time. Let's start with this issue of the vaccines. You know about my interview with Dr. Gerson. What do you say? Uh, it's another example how the Trudeau government ignored the capacity we had here in Canada and decided to try a risky partnership with China. And they put all their eggs in a basket with CanSino on the vaccine. So they ignored Nuvax, they ignored Providence uh, Therapeutics in Calgary, Medicago. We have we had capacity at home, and I think that that failed partnership with CanSino will rank as one of the most dangerous mistakes ever made by a Canadian government, Roy. Where would you say we would be if a Conservative government were in place, if you were Prime Minister, and if you had uh, had to deal with this pandemic since day one, where would we be as far as the vaccine rollout is concerned, vis-a-vis where we are now? What would you We'd be getting vaccines into arms. Um, this is where having a Prime Minister who's not focused on himself and his own political image and is... But having a prime minister focus on getting things done, that, that's my record in the military and the private sector. It's interesting you say that. A, a former journalist uh, just, I think, yesterday posted uh, a, a post of mine from a year ago saying what Canada needed to do in terms of tracing, uh, tracking and domestic capacity for, for PPE and, and vaccines. Um, this was something I was saying last March and April, Roy, and it's been sad to watch the Trudeau government, two or three steps behind uh, the world on on many parts of this crisis, especially vaccines and rapid tests. Canadians are paying the price. This is the third wave. I call it the Trudeau third wave, because had we had vaccination rates uh, uh, much higher from consistent deliveries in January and February, we would basically have less risks now that the variants are in the okay. population. So it's, it's a failure of a historic level. So if you were to say to me, and you just did, quote something I said last year or earlier. You also said there'd be no carbon tax if you were to become prime minister. And yet you are planning a carbon tax. So I'm going to give you time here, Mr. O'Toole, to talk about your climate initiative and persuade Canadians that you're doing the right thing, including conservatives who sent me emails and said, what is Aaron O'Toole doing? He said there'd be no carbon tax and now he's talking about one. What do you want to say to these people? I'll say to them there'll be no carbon tax. Uh, now, I am putting a price on carbon for the consumers. It's dramatically lower than the price being used by Mr. Trudeau. Isn't that semantics, uh, though? No, because a fundamental aspect of a tax, Roy, is 
you pay under compulsion to the government, and the government then uh, makes use of your funds. In this case, the low-carbon savings account does have a charge at the gas pump, for example, but it goes into your savings account. It is a dedicated account, much like an RESP or an account that's dedicated to a certain uh, cause, but it's your money. There's no transfer. And what, what Trudeau does with his carbon tax, which now he's tripling, they redistribute revenue. So what they do is they take it from small businesses and give it to, to other Canadians. Suburban commuters, for example, will never get what they pay in Trudeau's carbon tax. And Trudeau will not actually tell Canadians what their carbon footprint is and what they're going to get back. Our, our approach is totally different. It's transparent, so you will know what you spend because it goes into your low-carbon savings account. The only difference is the, those, those funds, that, that account, would then have to be used for green-type purchases so that we're, there would be a reduction in the carbon exposure. You could save up for yeah. a hybrid or an EV over time, or you could even buy low-carbon food or products to help lower your footprint. It's wow. innovative, Roy, but it's not a tax. Well, I like yours better than his. I mean, his his is just... <laughs> well, I like, I like yours better. I like yours better. I, I like yours better. For whatever, I'm just one voice. So let's talk about the federal budget. It's going to be brought down tomorrow. First one in over two years. The provinces manage to deliver budgets each year. The other countries in the G7 managed to deliver budgets in each year, but our federal government didn't. So we're going to have one tomorrow. We also have the specter of some 70 to $100 billion, this is what the finance minister said, being spent over the next three years to stimulate the economy. CEOs, including the CEO of uh, RBC, has urged the government not to overdo it because you don't want to overheat things and start inflation going. What are you? What are you waiting? What are you expecting in this federal budget? And what will you find acceptable, Mr. O'Toole? And what would cause you to say, "Let's work hard to to, to trigger an election"? Well, what I'm expecting and what I want to see will be very different, Roy. I I had a call with the Prime Minister a week ago, and I said this has to be entirely focused on jobs and recovery post COVID, and it this can't be a time for experimenting with our economy. You know his his language about reimagination or using the, the economic crisis as a way to build back better, that sort of rhetoric. If we see huge spending commitments on, on sort of this reimagine our economy rhetoric, we, we, will, we will be very, very upset. Because right now, with COVID, with his failure on vaccines, with high unemployment, Canadians are really worried. Will life get back to normal? So I, I would like to see support for sectors hard hit like small businesses tourism and others i do not want to see grand experimentations a universal basic income all these big schemes that could really put a debt burden on our children and grandchildren of, of historic levels that we may never ever dig out from so under. if you get that if that happens tomorrow will you work hard to trigger an election is that enough for you to say let's do what we can to go to the polls well, we said we'd like to see vaccines in arms before we go to the polls. And the budget, which could be a showdown for an election, Roy, normally, won't be this time because Mr. Singh has already said he's supporting the budget sight unseen. Uh, we said, let's see a focus on jobs. Let's see what the government says. As you said, after two years, the only G7 country that yeah. hasn't had a budget in, in that period of time. Um, so I don't think there will be an election over the budget. But certainly if Mr. Trudeau shows he's going to... Uh, 
double down on this uh, experimenting, this massive deficits as far as the eye can see. We're going to fight hard against that because it's our kids. Yeah, but what does that mean? What does that mean, Mr. O'Toole, fight hard against it? People are looking for declarative statements and, and, and action. And I've talked to you about well, this before. You can make a difference, but you've got to be declarative. You have to give Canadians something to really latch on to. This Aaron O'Toole guy, who we're just getting to know, I know you're cabinet minister for many years, but this Aaron O'Toole guy is going to make a difference, and this is what he's going to do. It's the declarative statements that are necessary. This is it. This is free political advice. Use it or don't. We, we need to have Canada. We need to have Canada ready for a crisis in the future. I put out, Roy, our Canada recovery plan, the five pillars that we yeah. think Canada needs to focus on. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, as an ex-military guy, private sector person, someone who turned around the Department of the Federal Government in under a year, I will never let our country be so unprepared in the future. And I think that's what Can- Canadians want. They don't want a celebrity prime minister. They want to yeah. roll up the sleeves, make sure we're ready, prime minister, and that's what they'll get with me. This is what we want to hear. And I have to say this to you, and I've said it to you before, and you didn't solicit it, and you didn't know I was doing it. I went to veterans organizations, and I asked them before an interview with you some months ago, what do you think of this Aaron O'Toole? What was he like when he was Veterans Affairs Minister? And they all, with no reason to do so, other than my asking a question, spoke very highly of what of what you did for veterans. So, there you go. Dr. Isaac Bogos joins us again, infectious diseases specialist at Toronto General Hospital, associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogos, good to have you back with us. We have an entire region in the province of Ontario, Great Bruce, being told to assume they have COVID-19. We have 4,800, almost 4,800 cases in the province of Ontario as of Friday. Where do we stand? Oh, well, things are pretty bad right now. I think it's pretty obvious. You've got a ton of new cases per day. You've got hospital systems that are being overwhelmed. You've got adults admitted to pediatric intensive care units and tents being set up outside of some hospitals just to to care for patients. I mean, you've got uh, surgeries canceled throughout the province, so we have an all-hands-on-deck approach to care for the influx of patients with COVID-19. It's going to be a very challenging few weeks ahead. So a lot of people, of course, look at the province, at least the city of Toronto, as being where everything takes place. But from what you're telling me, and you're part of the task force or the vaccine rollout, this is province-wide at the moment, yes? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, Toronto and Peel are are certainly the more heavily impacted areas. But I think it's fair to say that this is a province-wide issue. Some places are doing better than others. That's clear. But I wouldn't say anyone's out of out of the clear just yet. And uh, we do need province-wide policy. I mean, it's interesting, though. Like, it, it's a huge, huge geographic area, and there are meaningful differences. Thunder Bay, for example, was in a very rough spot a few weeks ago, and they've actually managed to quell a huge outbreak that they've been having. So, you know, but, but in general, I think it's fair to say that things are getting worse, not better for the province. And we will only start to see the benefit of any of the policy measures that were taken initially on April 8th. But then, of course, we heard about this, I don't even know what to call it, from a couple of days ago. You know, there's always about a two-week lag time before we start to see those effects. So I think it's still fair to say that we might see some pretty ugly numbers, and we may not have crested just yet. But uh, hopefully we'll crest soon and start to get on the downslope of these new cases per day. So we're really treading water until we can get enough vaccines into people's arms. Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, of course, you know, it's still also fair to say that we are getting more and more vaccines. The vaccines are going into the arms 
more quickly. Uh, but we're going to policy our way out of this wave. We're not going to vaccinate our way out of this wave. The, the, the vaccines will help uh, determine who gets infected and, and kind of change the demographic a bit. But it's not going to end the wave. We're going to need sound public health policy. Vaccines will prevent, hopefully prevent, a, a large subsequent wave after this and really keep us safe moving forward. But we're really going to need a very skilled political and public, yeah, very skilled political and public health leadership to get us through the next, oh, probably six to eight weeks. What would you want to see in place? A couple of things. I think, uh, you know, I think lockdowns stink. I mean, we get it. Everyone gets it. But like, what do you do? Got any other options when things are this bad? There's nothing else that you can actually do to curb cases. You've got to stop all indoor contact. So sadly, locking down is the right move. And I say sadly because we know of the horrible mental health and and financial health that uh, we we know the tremendous impacts this has. I think a lot of things that are considered essential are actually not essential. There's way too broad a definition of essential. We know essential workers are disproportionately impacted, including the communities they live in. And then I provide support, support, support. And again, I know this gets politicized and I try to avoid that at all costs. But like, you got to support the people who are getting infected. You got to support the communities who are getting infected. 80% of the infections are in 20% of the uh, province. And and you've just got to dump in resources there. If that means supporting people so that they don't go to work sick, great. If that means making sure people have access to a quarantine facility so they don't go home and infect their multi-generational home that are all in a one-bedroom apartment, great. If that means doing testing and lowering barriers to testing and you don't have any punitive nature so that if you test positive, you still get to keep your job, great. Like, let's do what it takes to really help those 20% because that is, first of all, the right thing to do and the ethical thing to do. It also ends this pandemic quicker for all of us. What do you say to, and this is polling done for Global News by Ipsos, that a majority of Canadians or a significant percentage of Canadians say the kind of vaccine, the type of vaccine they're going to be offered will determine whether or not they will accept the vaccine. Has the messaging about vaccines just been not delivered very well or just misunderstood or a combination of the two? It's terrible. Come on. Like, let's put it in the context here. We have never had this many cases of COVID-19 in the country than ever before. This is about as dangerous as it gets for Canadians with COVID-19 throughout the pandemic. It is. It it just is. The numbers don't lie. You have potentially life-saving vaccines. Like, they not just save your life, but they also save the life of those around you. And we're arguing and debating about real, but obviously very rare, adverse effects. The context matters. Listen, would you give this vaccine during a time where there's very little COVID-19 and we've got a, we're swimming in vaccines and you've got a million other options? No, you wouldn't. But like, here's a potentially life-saving vaccine that has very, very, very little downside of extremely rare side effect, but it has tremendous benefit that has transformed the epidemic elsewhere. Look at the UK, you know, and we can have it here too. And we're, you know, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot with the communications on this. It's really yeah, unfortunate. My, my, feeling is, my, my feeling still is that people will take what they're offered. The vast majority will. Maybe they'll tell polling companies one thing, but when it comes time to make a decision to be vaccinated, given what we're facing, I think a majority of people will take what they would. I know I certainly would. I, I got the Pfizer vaccine. That was there where I was vaccinated, but I would have taken anything they had. I hear you. Me yeah. too. And in I, a minute. I, I, yeah. And in but a we'll see. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I know there's, we can't ignore the hesitancy, but we just have to continue to message it fairly, 
message it honestly and make it available. Yeah. Would you say that we have not been in this bad a shape since the very beginning of the pandemic? And part B to that is, do you still believe that by the end or sometime in 2021, things will have significantly improved? Oh, yeah. I mean, so so both are true. Yes, I, we have not been in this bad shape. I, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, but also, like, let's also remember this. Waves are a hallmark feature of pandemics. We know how to get out of this wave. We've been able to get out of the other waves as well. And we'll get out of this one as well. And also, it's not nice to say, but like, no matter how badly different provinces or the country screws this up, you can throw enough vaccine at the problem and it'll eventually get better. Like, look at the U.S., look at Israel, look at the U.K. All of them had disastrous pandemic responses, and they just vaccinated like stink, and now it's better. Okay? Yeah. And, and well, the yeah, Israelis not so vaccinated. The Israelis slower, not so but much. But we're doing it. Yeah, the Israelis not so much. I mean, they got it right away. But certainly the United States and the U.K. had major issues, huge issues. Oh, I would say Israel was there. Israel had like three different lockdowns. They kept botching it. Yeah. But they, they got into it very quickly, and they, they were yeah, ahead of everybody yeah. else. They were ahead of the curve in vaccinating Yeah, I'm just thinking the vaccines transform it. If you throw vaccines at the yeah. problem, no, the problem will get better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no yeah. matter who's in charge. Exactly. Just and, and in Canada, just taking more time. We're vaccinating, in Ontario at least, more days than not 100,000 people per day. Hopefully we can get that up to about 150,000 people per day, which would be a good clip. And like, you know, it's going to take a couple of months. But watch, this, this, this will transform. Okay. Vulnerable communities and vulnerable people will get it. Then it'll be re- uh, available to any adult. And, and like, we're, we're, you know, significant number of people have access to the vaccine and have had at least one dose. It's going to transform our epidemic. It All absolutely right. will. Joining us now is David Redmond. And we've spoken with Colonel Redmond before, retired Lieutenant Colonel of the Canadian Forces, former Executive Director of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. And uh, David, thank you so much for coming back on the program. And you sent me an email the other day. I sent a lot of people. I was one of the people on the list. And it has to do with the COVID-19 Alternative UK timeline. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'd like to talk to you about some of the things that you included in your email, which take me back to our first conversation. And you wrote in part, ruling our provinces and territories with fear and daily changing opinion polls our premiers and MOH, so medical officers of health, have caused massive harm. Please go ahead. Hi, Roy, and thanks for having me back. I, the the email I sent and the attachment is a, is a complete description of the difference between leadership and lack of leadership. Our premiers were supposed to be in charge of pandemic. They had pandemic plans. They had been written in advance. And what should have happened when the pandemic was declared, in fact, before the pandemic was declared, they should have taken those plans. And with a full cross-government governance team, they should have tailored the plan to match the actual disease that was coming at us. That didn't happen. Instead, they abrogated their responsibility of leadership and handed the leadership to the medical officers of health. The medical officers of health then defined the wrong aim right from the start, which in their minds was to stop everyone from catching COVID, when the actual aim should have been to minimize the damage of COVID on our provinces. So so the, the email I sent, I'm pointing out that the premiers haven't done their job, and that's exactly what the author, Russell David, did looking at the entire UK response. He said that the prime minister of their country 
abrogated his responsibility and that the results would have been completely different if he had not. And it would have been different, he writes, if David Cameron had been prime minister. If, if One of the things that we always have to look at is the difference between countries. And here in Canada, the response to a pandemic is predominantly in the hands of the premiers because they own the health care system province by province. So I put the blame squarely on the backs of the premiers and, and the fact that they didn't follow their own plans. Yes, at the national level, they had a conspirator in the prime minister who was daily handing out billions of dollars to keep healthy people hiding in their homes. But the fact remains is the premier should have followed the, their own plans. They knew that what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions and what we now call as lockdowns do not have significant impact either on the spread of a disease or on the deaths caused by a disease. So but they use them as their primary method to respond to this pandemic and never should have. Dave, if we now we now look at this third wave and these variants and the increases in numbers of people who are uh, testing uh, positive for COVID and winding up in the hospitals, the ICUs are very busy, as we've heard doctors say to us. Does this does the whole idea of the in-place pandemic planning that was already done and ready and waiting for a pandemic, which happened, and as you've told us before, the government's just pushed to the side once they once it got started, the pandemic got started. Would those pandemic plans still hold water today, given where we are medically with the COVID vaccine, uh, pandemic? Absolutely. And, and the point of them is, is you either lead through confidence or you hand the country over to fear. And what people don't realize, first of all, I want to go back to the point that lockdowns do not have a significant impact on the spread of the disease, and yet we're told constantly they do. But what lockdowns do have is a massive collateral damage into mental health, societal health, the crushing of our children's education and socialization, deaths from other severe diseases, and our economy that has been devastated. But those things aren't being discussed by our medical officers of health. They're acting as if lockdowns will save lives when, in fact, they're taking 10 times more than they're saving, if they're saving any. And we've had study after study through this pandemic that reaffirms what we knew before this pandemic, that lockdowns are not effective to significantly stop the transmission of the disease. Why is it that places like Texas, who four weeks ago completely opened, are seeing a drop in their numbers, and lockdown countries are seeing increases in their numbers? Well, the United States is having a uh, great deal more success vaccinating people. They have it was 175 million vaccinations. I think that was the number that I read most recently. And we had a Washington Post reporter on yesterday who said the U.S. will have some surplus of 300 million vaccines by July. What they're going to do with it, we don't know. Um, so, yeah, yeah. You, Let me take you to Sweden. Okay, fire away. Let, let's use Sweden as our example. In the country of Sweden, who didn't follow the failed lockdown practices of our provinces, to date, they have had 154 people total under the age of 50 who've died of COVID. We know for a fact that a number of them had pre-existing conditions, but even if you take that out, at least double that number die from as traffic fatalities each year in that country. And yet, for some reason, we believe that lockdowns are A, effective, Sweden has done better than us in so many ways, and if you look at people under the age of 50 in Canada, 
you have a one you have a 50% greater chance of dying of a car accident in Canada than you do from dying of covid and yet we're told to constantly be in terror of this disease worldwide covid in its first year killed just under 2 million people pneumonia every year kills 2.54 million people we're never putting this disease in perspective that's what the article that I sent you and, and, and all of the other people and CC'd the premiers on says very yeah. clearly. Dave. We never put this in perspective. Kim Belware, national reporter for the Washington Post. And we spoke with Ms. Belware last weekend. And uh, Kim, thank you for coming back. It's uh, It's been an eventful week, particularly with Chauvin invoking the fifth. But that really wasn't a surprise, was it? No, that was the big thing that everybody was waiting for to see if that would be an aspect of the defense that, you know, people previously weren't prepared for. And it did play out how people expected. He invoked the fifth. We did not hear from him. And we won't before closing arguments. So what was the uh, other than that, other than which made headline news, what uh, during the last number of days really caught your attention as far as this trial is concerned? Well, the defense was short. It was about two days, and they're, you know, they, they stuck pretty much to what we thought they were going to stick to. They only have to raise enough doubt in one juror, so that could explain why they didn't take days and days to present their defense. They argued the same things that we heard they were going to argue in opening, which is that this was drugs, this was heart disease, this was some other factor other than the actions of officer, former Officer Chauvin, the other thing that was notable is with all of the unrest happening 10 miles away in the Minneapolis suburb of Brooklyn Center, there have been a lot of protests, a lot of police presence, and that's something that the defense asked uh, the judge to possibly sequester the jury or maybe move for a mistrial because of the influence on that. The judge declined to do any of those things, but uh, a, a few legal experts that I've heard from said, when it comes time for a verdict, if Chauvin is convicted, that could be one of the things that the defense raises if they try to mount an appeal. Yeah. There are so many moving parts in this particular case, as we suspected. But the fact that they, there was that police shooting with, a, with a, a young black man dead after a traffic stop and a 26-year veteran police officer being charged with manslaughter, that really was obviously not something you could expect, but it's, not, it's, not, it's more than just a sidebar, isn't it? This is a significant part of the overall equation. Yeah, I mean, and this goes back to cases not only with George Floyd, but cases that have been happening in Minneapolis and the Minneapolis suburbs in the past five years. It's just something that people in the area are familiar with by now, and particularly for black residents, it's something that they've raised concerns about with how policing is, you know, kind of executed in their communities and on, on those individuals. And it's playing up, you know, it's feeding into a lot of the emotions that we're seeing uh, kind of bubbling over at the Chauvin trial right now. Uh, David Fowler, and I'm reading from the Washington Post, a former chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland, and this is uh, a, a, an article that you co-wrote with uh, Timothy Bella. Uh, David Fowler, a former chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland, suggesting Floyd's possible exposure to carbon monoxide from the exhaust fumes of a police squad car may have contributed to his death. Speak with us about, about that, please. And is this what Judge Cahill ruled on Thursday was inadmissible? Yeah, so to unpack this a little bit, 
Um, Dr. Fowler had testified, you know, he raised a, another one of the possible causes of death for George Floyd, exhaust coming from the vehicle. And like I said, it just has to be something that casts enough of the blame off of Chauvin and on another factor. Now, we also saw the payoff from the prosecution calling so many expert witnesses during their portion of the case because they had so many witnesses who could speak to such specific aspects of science, of health, of um, specific physiology, like breathing. And so when uh, one of the biggest errors of the trial that we saw in the cross-examine was the prosecution asked Dr. Fowler, you know, if he even knew the car was on, and he didn't. And so he didn't have the same level of specificity that some of the prosecution's experts had. Now, the part that came uh, late in the week was that there was some information and some testing that kind of came to the attention of the prosecution during Dr. Fowler's testimony. This is not something that the prosecution had uh, necessarily prepared reports on. They apparently existed in the materials that the prosecution had, but they kind of didn't know or, or dig deep enough to find it in the cache of info they had until the Hennepin County Medical Examiner uh, reached out to them after Fowler gave his uh, testimony and they, they moved to introduce that on their uh, redirect, and Judge Cahill said, no, that, that info, you've had it because you didn't find it earlier, it was in your possession, and it would be too prejudicial, and so he did not allow tests related to carbon monoxide to be introduced. So what, what's, what actually happens tomorrow? Closing arguments, I understand, are going to come, are going to start, and the jury starts deliberation. What I'm not sure about is that uh, deliberation also includes the beginning of the jury's sequestration. Walk us through that, please. Yep. So closing arguments, uh, both sides are going to kind of do the, you know, the same thing they did at opening. They're going to sum up with the punchiest. Uh, things that they want the jury to remember as they head into deliberations. They can't speak to anything that wasn't discussed or introduced during the trial, but really they're going to make their last bid for the defense. It's going to be, there were all these other factors. George Floyd died of something. It was not uh, Chauvin's knee specifically. And the prosecution is going to say, um, you know, believe your eyes. You saw this video. You saw what happened. You know, this is, uh, you know, this is murder. And um, after that, the jury will be sequestered in a hotel. So this will begin their sequestration. They were able to go home prior to this. And so um, they are packed and ready to go. When they come to the courthouse on Monday morning, they will not be back home until they render a verdict. And the judge said, Judge Cahill said, uh, as far as how much they should pack for the sequestration, plan for long, hope for short. Uh, that's, that's the right. quote in your in your in your article. Is there any? Uh, I mean, everybody guesses at these um, possible lengths it's going to take, or time length of time it's going to take a jury to reach a verdict. Is there a sense, a real sense, of whether it'll be a quick uh, return by the jury or whether it could be lengthy? No, I mean, I think anytime uh, someone like me gets into the business of. Uh, prognostication. It gets a little dicey. I have heard people just, you know, other legal experts putting out their own, um, you know, their own guesstimates, other people that work in uh, the prosecutor's office in Hennepin County. They were thinking maybe we'd get a verdict by Wednesday. Notable is that the funeral for Dante Wright, the man who was shot by police in Brooklyn Center last week, his funeral is Friday. And I believe it's at the same church that George Floyd's funeral was headed. 
um, held at. So there could definitely be a lot of activity if a verdict comes midweek and then that funeral is the following day. Yeah, absolutely. Kim, one last question. What is what is it you will take away from this trial, personally, as a reporter, as a journalist? Um, I think I will really remember um, a lot of the eyewitnesses and how they spoke to feeling really powerless and really traumatized. And I, I have a feeling that that might open up a conversation of what the cost is for um, police use of force, whether it's found to be justified or not. There are certainly a lot of questions now about, you know, kind of what is the, in a sense, public health toll of something like this, of, of community trauma. And uh, now that there's recognition of that, even if even if Chauvin is found to have acted within the you know boundaries of his training, of his profession, this is still going to be something that police officers around the country are going to have to grapple with. The defense kept using the phrase lawful but awful, um, and at a time that uh, police in the United States really need to have the support of the community and the trust of the community, how are they going to be able to reconcile so-called lawful but awful practices with, uh, you know, how the community is responding to that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.